powerful text from the book of Galatians there. It leaves me with a question that I'm going to put on you. I put it on myself too. Do you live according to the flesh or according to the Spirit? Let the wheels spin just for a second on that. Do you live according to the flesh or according to the Spirit? Based upon the text that Diane just read from Galatians, right? You just saw some works of the flesh, the fruit of the Spirit. Compare and contrast. We'll put it back up in a second so you can think some more on it. Let's first of all clarify, though, what we mean. What do we mean by living with by living according to the flesh or living according to the spirit. You know, the Bible uses those phrases all the time. And in church, we talk, we use those language, that, those words too. We pick them up, but we're not always quite sure that everybody understands what we're talking about. We have a lot of church words like that that we use and we just throw around. Do we even know what we're talking about? Let's clarify just for a second here, a quick second. What, what does it not mean? What is the flesh and the spirit? When the Bible talks about flesh versus spirit, what does it not mean? So if you follow along on your notes page, what does it not mean? The first thing will be that it does not mean the body. When Paul, that's we're studying the book of Romans right now, written by the Apostle Paul. When Paul talks about the flesh versus the spirit, he's not talking about the body. And the second thing is the spirit is not the immaterial. I couldn't think of a single word simpler than that. I don't use the word immaterial very often, but... The spirit is not immaterial. It's not just the ghostly kind of, you know, up there kind of things. The spirit is not the immaterial and the flesh is not the body. There are people, there were people back in biblical times and there are people today who think that it is, who think that the spirit, the soul rather, the soul of the human being is what's really important. There are people who think that the soul is what's what's really the important part. And the body is just going to go away anyways. So to heck with it. It doesn't really matter. Back in Jesus' day, there were people called Gnostics. If you like fancy words, it's spelled G-N-O-S-T-I-C. Gnostics. And Gnostics believed that the soul, the spiritual stuff, the immaterial stuff, that's what was real. And so in effect, the soul was imprisoned in the body. And the goal of life was to like a caterpillar coming out of a cocoon, a butterfly, I guess, coming out of a cocoon, would be to shed the body and escape to some spiritual, I don't know, place. The Christians came along, and every Christian uh, church uh, throughout the generations has condemned Gnosticism as a heresy, as it's not as untruth. Christians came along, and now think about it. They said something completely different. Christians came along, and they worshipped a God who did what? A God who left the heavenly realms, who left the spiritual places, and did what? Took on what? Flesh took on a body upon, I just said flesh is not the body, so be careful. He took on a body onto himself, right? So the body is not the problem. Then when that God was killed in the body and when he was resurrected, what was he resurrected as? A ghost? A spirit? A soul? What was he resurrected as? A body, right? The world had never heard anything like this before and has never heard anything like it since. Don't let anybody tell you that all religions are essentially the same. The, Christians, the Christian claims are strikingly dissimilar from anything the world has ever heard. Strikingly dissimilar. So the Christian God takes on a body to come to this earth to save and to rescue and to redeem it. And what is the Christian hope in the future? Is Jesus going to come back one day and just do away with it all? 
blow it all up? No. The Christian hope is that you and I and every the world, you see, look at the the world is like occupied territory right now. It was created good. It's always good, been good. Everything about it is good. There's nothing wrong with the physical stuff in this world. What's happened is it's enemy-occupied territory. And so sin has come into the problem. And, and, and sin is the desire to glorify that which is not God. And so that's the problem in the world. Jesus coming again, it's like the, the, it's like the allies landing on the beaches of Normandy. Okay? That's what it is. And then he's going to kick out anybody who would pollute or destroy or corrupt his good creation. And he's going to remake everything except Sin will be no more. It'll be the absence of sin. And your body and my body are part of that good creation that are going to be remade, reborn, renewed, restored, glorified. And you just have to use your imagination to, understand, to even get close to what that... You won't get close to it. But you just have to use your imagination to think about what that might be like. But the Bible doesn't know anything about a human being without a body. That is a foreign concept to the Bible. This life or the next life, the Bible doesn't know anything about a human being without a body. Bodies, physicality are important. So I've kind of beat that horse to death, but I wanted to make sure that we were clear on that. So if, if, if the flesh is not body, and if the spirit is not immaterial, then what are these two things? And I'll tell you. <clears throat> the spirit desires to glorify God above all else. That's the Holy Spirit's job. That's why the Holy Spirit does what he does. That's why he draws people to himself, as Cindy correctly said earlier in her testimony. That's why the Holy Spirit gives the gifts that he gives, all to make Jesus famous, to glorify God. The flesh, on the other hand, the flesh exists to glorify anything and anyone other than God. You see? So when Paul is talking about when Paul is talking about the flesh versus the spirit, he's not talking about physicality versus the immaterial. He's talking about a desire to glorify God or a desire to glorify anything or anyone that is not God. Now, there's this wrestling, there's this battle, there's this war that's going on and Paul's going to talk about that, even in his own life and in the life of his people Israel. If you turn with me to Romans chapter 7, we're in verse 14, and we're going to go in, we're going to spill into chapter 8 just a little bit. Let's ask God to bless the reading of his word, and then let's, let's hear Paul's own wrestling with the, the battle here between the flesh and the spirit. Pray with me. Uh, Holy God, we pray, we thank you, first of all, Lord, we thank you for uh, so many gifts for uh, calling us to yourself, for revealing yourself in the scriptures and in Jesus Christ, for saving us, for putting our sin to death on the cross. Lord, for preserving your truth in, your, in this, your word. Lord, we pray that you would use that truth, that eternal truth in your word to minister to each of us today. Maybe you answer a question for us today. Maybe you just give us a dozen more questions. That's how you work sometimes. Lord, we welcome it. Whatever, 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 you, whatever would be your will, Father, we want you to have your way with our hearts and our lives today. 
In Jesus' name, amen. So listen as Paul sort of explains this wrestling that goes on. In in chapter 7, verse 14, he says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh. Again, not immaterial. That means spiritual what? The law, law seeks to glorify God. That's the law's job. But Paul is of the flesh. He's not glorifying God. He is sold under sin, verse 15, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now I do what I do not want. Now, excuse me. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. The law is good. He is not. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. This is God's Word. So Paul has this battle going on within him. There's this battle. He wants to glorify God, but he feels like he experientially he cannot carry that out. He cannot do that. And now what does he do? First thing I want you to notice is what does uh, uh, Paul do in response to this inner struggle. It's very important what he does. And we're going to talk more about it next week. We're going to dig deep next week as to what he does. But I want you to look at what he does. He's kind of in agony over this, right? How, it's, like, it's like he hears that little voice in the back of his head saying, Who are you, Paul? Who are you? Don't you know what you've done? Don't you know your past? Don't you know your history? Don't you know? You used to persecute these Christians. You used to persecute the church. You used to think you were so high and mighty. Don't you remember Stephen? Don't you remember Stephen? That good man, that good man who was doing nothing wrong, but who you stood over top of while they killed him to death with rocks? And you gave your approval. Who are you to tell other people how to live, Paul? What does Paul do to that little voice in the back of his head? What does he say to that little voice? Did you notice? He says, you know what? You're right. 
He says, you can almost hear the agony in his voice, wretched man that I am. If you've ever felt that, boy, you are this close to the kingdom of God. It's step number one. You have to realize that. Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? And then what does he do to that little voice? He points that little voice to the cross. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Paul knows that there's only one kind of person who can come into the presence of the Lord. Paul was a devout and well-studied Jew. He knew the temple structure, the sacrifices, the holy of holies, all the bells and whistles, the whole nine yards. All of that was designed to teach the people of Israel that only a perfect person can come into the presence of God. Only a perfect person can come into the presence of God. You say, Adam, that's a little bit strict, isn't it? That standard is a little bit high. How can God be a loving God and yet have such a high standard? Surely nobody can measure up. Well, do a little exercise with me real quick. Let's just pretend. Let's say God said, okay, only people who are 10% uh, or 10%, 90% good. Let's say that. No, no, no. The other way around. Only people who are 10% good. Let's say only people who are 10% good. So you can be 90% bad and you can still get into the kingdom of God, right? Well, you have this problem, don't you? You have a problem on both sides of this. Because what about the guy who's 9.999999% good? He's, he's going to say, what do you mean, God? You mean, if I would have walked just one little old lady more across the street, I'd be in paradise. But instead, I get eternal damnation. What's up with that, God? Come on. What kind of God could allow that? You see where you're at? And what about the guy who's just 10.000001% good and the rest percent bad? Well, that guy's a scoundrel. What kind of God is going to let that guy, he's going to bring that guy into paradise, right? You have the same problem if you say, well, 50-50. What about 50-50? You have the same people. The difference between paradise and damnation is one good deed, potentially, that's absurd. We're arguing ourselves into absurdity because, well, because it's a silly concept. It's a silly concept. We don't need to do it. The Bible's clear. God is clear. Only perfect people get to be in the presence of God. And that solves our problem. Except for one thing. Paul knew this too. There's only two ways to be perfect. There's only two ways to be perfect. And the first way is the law. So Paul looks at the law and he says, well, how am I doing? And he says, well, let me just take the first, let me just take the first commandment, the greatest commandment of the law. And you can ask yourself this question right where you sit today. How you doing? You can ask, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. How you doing? Right? If you got it, if you're perfect, if you're 100%, you're good. You don't really need to turn the page or read any further into scripture. You are good. You're golden. See ya. The second part of that commandment was love your neighbor as yourself. You still good? See, Paul knew. Paul knew, oh, what wretched man that I am. See, he knew that even being just 0.001% bad is, is being too bad. It's disqualifying yourself from communion with God. But Paul knew there was another way to be perfect. That's what he's talking about here in Romans 8, 1 through 4. I think it'll be on the screen behind me. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are what? In Christ Jesus. Then jump to verse 3. For God did what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. God sent his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. And he, God, condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled. Jesus had taken the penalty for Paul's sin upon himself. Paul knew this on the cross. 
And God judged Paul guilty. Follow me now. You got to hear this. Paul, God judged Paul guilty for that sin. And as a result of Paul's guilt, Jesus died on the cross. So that the law would be perfectly fulfilled and Jesus could take his record and put it on Paul. So that when God looks upon Paul, God sees God's son's perfect record, perfect life. And now Paul knows that he can come into the presence of God. You see how that works? Not because he's perfect, but because he is perfect. Yeah, I just said it that way. Not because he's perfect, but because he's perfect. Right? He hasn't been perfect himself, but he has Jesus' perfection. Been given to him. That's what grace is. And that's what Jesus offers to do to you, for you as well. That's what Jesus offers to do for you. You just believe in him. You tell him you're sorry for your sin. And that you want to be better. As John said, prayer is not a magic formula. It's really as simple as that. You just believe in Jesus. You tell him that you're sorry for your sin, that you want to be better. And then you take the next step, one step at a time in following him. Here's why this is important. I'm going to close with these two points. You know what a catechism is? Some of you do. If you don't know what a catechism is, a catechism is a series of questions and answers used to teach people the faith, to teach people a system of belief. We in the EPC, our denomination, we adhere to the Westminster Catechism of Faith. We teach and we believe the Westminster. The Westminster Catechism starts with this question, question number one. Read it with me. Why don't you read it out loud? I'll make sure you're still up and awake and alive. What is the primary and highest purpose of human beings? Now, don't give me the answer yet. Now, hold on. I said, don't. I said, don't give me the answer yet. Ever wonder what the meaning of life is? These people had the audacity to write it down on paper that they had figured out the meaning of life. Somebody post that on Facebook. 500 years ago, no, 600 years ago. 600, 550, long time ago. (laughs) And we still believe it. They didn't invent this stuff. They're just summarizing the teachings of the Bible. That's all they're doing. They're summarizing the teachings of the Bible. You're dying to know the answer, aren't you? Those of you who don't have it memorized. The answer to the meaning of life, drumroll please, is... The, read it with me. The primary and highest purpose of human beings is to glorify God and enjoy Him completely forever. What does it mean to walk in the Spirit? To glorify God as opposed to the flesh, which is to glorify anything except God. Right? What does it mean to glorify God? It means to put Him in the center of your universe. It means to put him in the center of your universe. Now, is that a harsh demand? Is that the demand? I've heard people say this, that God is some sort of egomaniac or some sort of, he is um, uh, 
paranoid or he is uh, insecure. And so anybody who gets even a little bit out of line, he just has to smite them because he just can't stand a challenge to his own. He's just so fragile. A lot of people write like this. They sell lots of books arguing this stuff. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. God says, glorify me, because God is the only one worthy of being at the center of your life. Here's how silly we are in most of us. Because most of us, when we gratify the the, the desires of the flesh, when we're living according to the flesh, the thing that we're glorifying that's not God is, is us, me. I'm the, I'm the thing that I'm glorifying, whether I'm, I'm saying stuff I shouldn't say about the guy next to me in traffic or whether I am just being lazy and I don't want to get off the social media or the whatever it is, any, any little ways, big ways, what, I'm glorifying me. I'm putting me at the center of my universe. And it's so hard not to do that. Yea, verily, it's impossible not to do that without the Spirit of God, but we'll move on. Uh, I'm putting me at the center of my universe. Now, now, now this is why this is so foolish. This is why, have you ever had, I had uh, sisters. I have an older sister and a younger sister. Have you ever gone into a teenage girl's room and seen a flower on her bulletin board or on a hope chest or something, but it's a really old flower? And it's like, it used to be a rose, but now it looks more like tobacco or something, <laughs> right? Ever seen that? I, my sisters had flowers in their bedrooms that look like, what are you hanging on to that thing for, right? What are you doing with that? See, glorifying me, that's kind of like taking that flower. You know why they have those flowers, right? I don't have to back, I don't have to fill that in, right? Okay, you're with me, you're tracking. Okay, so that's like taking that flower and when I grow up and I get married, I'm going to make it the decor, the decorative centerpiece of my home. All the furniture is going to be around it. And forever, for my whole entire life, nobody's allowed to touch it, don't breathe on it, right? That's what it's like. Because what does the Bible say about me, about my life, about who I am? You know what the Bible says? You are a mist. You are a vapor. You are like grass of the fields. That means I am here today and I am gone tomorrow. The hardest thing Billy Graham had, had to, the hardest thing Billy Graham had to convince people of was the brevity of life. The brevity of life. Throw that up there. Billy Graham says, if, I, if someone had told me when I was... He said this in his 90s, by the way. If someone had told me that life was very short, I wouldn't have believed it. And if I tell you that, I don't, uh, you don't believe it either. I cannot get young people to understand how brief life is, how quickly life passes. I would add that I cannot get old people to understand. Even pe- old people who tell me life flies by. I cannot even get them to understand that today could be my last day. Am I living it appropriately? You see, when we glorify anything that's not God, anything, our kids, our company, our country, our political party, our favorite sports team, anything that's not God, it's putting that wrinkly, withered, dried up rose in the center of my home. And I'm expecting everybody else to just admire it. It's that silly. That's why God says glorify me. That's why God says put me at the center of your life. That's why the answer to the first question of the Westminster Catechism is to glorify God and to enjoy him completely forever. That is the meaning of life. That is the meaning of being a human. And you see, God knows because he loves you and he loves me. He knows. Did you get the second part? To glorify God, 
and to enjoy him. Is God a good God? To answer Cindy's question, does he just want to take away everything that you love? Oh, no. He wants you to enjoy him completely and forever. But he knows the only way you can enjoy him completely and forever is by glorifying him the way that you were built to, the way that you were designed to glorify him. It's the only way. How do you do that? You don't work harder and try harder. You cast your eyes on Jesus. We're going to talk about that next week as we pick up the same text and move further into chapter 8. But the first question I want to leave you with, the question I want to leave you with, is a matter of desire. It's a matter of desire. Because when we read from Galatians, all the works of the flesh, all the fruits of the Spirit, you might expect some rip-roaring preacher to get up here and say, okay, here's the works of the flesh. Don't do that. Here's the fruit of the Spirit. Do that. And plenty of preachers have tried. You can go home, flip on the TV. There'll be somebody telling you that right now. And it won't work. It won't work. It'll do one of two things. It'll make you either proud, puffed up, because you're, you're doing the good stuff, at least the stuff that you decided is most important. You're doing a pretty good job. You're better than that poor schmuck. Or it'll make you hate yourself and probably, or hate God and walk away from God because woe is me, I can never measure up. It won't work, right? The, 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 the question of flesh versus spirit It's not about works. It's not about fruit. That's downstream. That comes later. It's first about desire. It's what's your desire. Do you desire to glorify God? Do you desire to enjoy God completely and forever? Do you even want to desire to glorify. Let me ask that one more time. Do you even want to desire to glorify God? Let's pray. Father, I want to want you. I want to want you. As the centurion in the gospel said, I believe, help, Lord, my unbelief. Maybe that's the prayer of somebody else here this morning. I believe, help, my unbelief. Lead us, Lord, in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. For your name's sake. We give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.